we were joking because Christina was on air. Uh, she, my wife, she does her broadcast from our bedroom. And we were saying I was going to be watching the races from our bed. It's sitting in my dressing gown. And if I had won more than one race, I would have, you know, you could have panned around and I would have held up three fingers <laughs> sitting in the bed. <laughs> oh, TVG would have never recovered. That's fantastic. <laughs> in my Hugh Hefner dressing gown. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the TVG Podcast. Um, going to have a good friend of mine on the show today, Dan Blacker, husband of Christina Blacker, a Southern California trainer. He is uh, an expatriate Brit here in Southern California and uh, making his way through uh, Southern California training ranks. Um, he's a hell of a horseman and a great uh, story about how he got into the racing business here in Southern California, all the way from Great Britain. He was part of the Darley Flying Star program. We'll talk to him about that. And, you know, he's part of a really good group of guys that went through there. They were just lucky to kind of have a nice crew that went through, but they're all very successful now. He, um, Tom Morley, who trains in New York, or we'll talk about Boomer, who's a bloodstock agent in Australia. And these are all people that if you're in racing at all, these are names that, that you will see and you will know and should be somewhat familiar to you. And of course, his name, uh, familiar with the successes he's had here in Southern California. And then, of course, being married to Christina, we get to see a lot of him here in Southern California. Um, uh, though she does do a good job of separating uh, her on-air work from his his training work, uh, we'll talk about that work life, uh, the three girls and whatnot. I, I I am feeling like we're I don't know the the, the country in general is just kind of getting used to quarantine and we're all I don't know if we're going to get that you know too happy with the successes we've seen from all the quarantining and social distancing we've been doing and get ahead of ourselves. We had a little bit of an incident in Southern California, Newport beach. You guys saw that my father-in-law lives right on the beach there. And it's a house that my wife and I use a lot. And you know, there was thousands and thousands of people there. So it's, it is a little scary that are we going to, Hey, are we going to get too happy too quick and, and everyone run out of the house? But it is starting to feel like some of the tensions lifting, and it is starting to feel like, hey, maybe life can start going back to normal a little bit. It's just that feel. You know, we I probably watch the news too much, probably read too much. But I do feel like I've gotten the hang of this. I hope some of you at, at home feel the same way. You've gotten the hang of the staying at home and, and trying to work from home. Um, I don't feel as anxious as I was two, three, and four weeks ago. Um so I don't know. Hopefully there's good things on the horizon. I, I've been talking to people about racing in Southern California and whether that's going to start back up. There's been talk about um, Santa Anita getting going in mid-May. Um, we'll see what they do for Del Mar. They're probably going to race, and we'll see if it's you know with or without fans. Sounding like the way all sports are going. NBA is going to try and get their season going and do it without fans. Major League Baseball has a plan to do it without fans. NFL is still far enough away. They haven't put that in place, but I know there's in discussion. So you think racing is going to fall in line with a lot of those things. This is going to come out after the Arkansas Derby, both divisions. I have not seen them yet. Um, but hey, that first division. Oh, but that second division. But did you see? I, I didn't see any of it. That's not what this podcast is. I, I really um, try not to make it too timely because I want these to live um, on forever and be able to, you know, revisit and, and really see some of the guests that we have on and, and take a look at that snapshot of their lives. Uh, we've had a lot of fun pulling back the curtain with, with Doug O'Neill and trainer Brad Cox. We've got very specific on his horses around that interview, but then we talked to Todd Shrupp and Brittany Yurton, and, uh, we're going to talk to Dan today about that. Uh, these are, these are podcasts I want um, to live forever. Um, speaking of things that would appear to live forever, I, I don't think, I don't think any of us who knew R.D. Hubbard ever really thought he could die. I know that's a bit of hyperbole, but I, I don't think I'm speaking out of school here by saying that. He was one of those legendary people that you just thought was going to go on forever. He maintained a pace of life that was unlike anyone else's I had ever seen. Uh, my exposure to R.D. Hubbard came in, in a couple of ways. One was... When I started at TVG, it was in 2001, he was very instrumental in the research and TVG being you know, launched in the first place in 1999. 
uh, Hubbard Industries, um, they were very involved with the creation of TVG. And a lot of the people and the original executive staff were people that he helped put in those places, including our first ever president, Mark Wilson, um, my former boss, uh, Tony Alvado. Those were both Hubbard guys that came through the ranks um, from Hollywood Park and then into TVG and really helped shape the company that it was. So because of Hubbard, you have, and this is not in no small way, um, you have TVG and you have a changed landscape in racing. He was as innovative and ahead of his time as any in this sport. And he was also a benevolent dictator with the way he did things. He ran things his way. Um, he had absolute control of Hollywood Park when he ran it. He made a lot of decisions that I think the, the rank-and-filed, old-school, hard-boot racing industry people you know, squinted at and, 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 and shrugged their, their shoulders at, like, what, what is, is this appropriate? But he was so in tune with what customers wanted. He was very much um, on the apron and on the backstretch and on horseback, and he was very much in tune, and he had this great vision of what would make things better. He was always up for a great idea. It was the art of the conquest. It was the art of the creating something. Um, he was an entrepreneur in every sense of the word. Um, he came to racing with his fortune that he made himself. He was born in the Great Depression. He made his money through um, an auto glass company that he ended up buying when he worked his way up as a salesman. And then he bought other distressed auto glass companies until he was one of the biggest manufacturers of auto glass in, in the world. And then he ventured into racing. And for four decades, he was as important in this industry as any single person could be, um, not just in Hollywood Park and Rio Doso down to New Mexico. He's in the Quarter Horse Racing Hall of Fame. And that was the other way I got to know him was through years of covering the All-American Futurity. And I'll tell you the R.D. Hubbard that I knew. Um, he passed away at the age of 84. So from, you know, his mid-70s to his mid-80s, I was lucky enough to cover the All-American Futurity at Rio Doso Downs. And this was a big theme of my podcast that we put out last week with Todd Shrub. And R.D. Hubbard, when he took over Rio Doso Downs, he was, he, he took the All-American from a million-dollar race to what is now a $3 million race. Um, he took a, a great event and made it a world-class event. He took a racetrack in the mountains, and he, he put in a quarter-horse-only track next to the thoroughbred track. It had never been done before, and I don't know if there's any other racetrack in the world that has that. So the, the quarter-horse track is its own separate surface, and then the thoroughbred track is on the other side of the rail. He did all of these things. He had the most successful sale in quarter horse racing, that All-American Futurity sale. And that All-American sale went, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night of All-American weekend. And then the All-American Futurity was on Labor Day. And it was a successful sale because, one, Hubbard willed it to be. But he was, you know, a Pied Piper of sorts where he could call in all these major pillars of the industry whether it be from Oklahoma or New Mexico or California, and bring all these great breeding operations, bring all these great consignments together, bring all these buyers, owners, all into one spot. And he said the two things, and I'll never forget this, he said the two things that made his sale successful were liquor and lights. He wanted people lubed up, and he wanted them to see who they were bidding against. And that absolutely encompasses what that sale was. And it was the craziest sale you've ever seen, and it would go until all hours of the night. I mean, they'd start bidding on horses right after the races were done, and they'd be bidding up until midnight. And then the party would go downtown, Rio Doso Downs, and people would be at the Wind Place show until they closed, and they'd be back at the track the next day. And it was a weekend that whew, you had to have you had to have your drinking boots on. I mean, it was it was a rough weekend. And high above it all sat D. Hubbard in the crow's nest, his own personal office on top of the grandstand at Rio Doso Downs. And in that office... There were times I would go in there, we would see Governor Bill Richardson when he was preparing for his presidential campaign. I met Toby Keith up there. We would see every sort of celebrity, millionaire, people who were there, and the one thing they had in common was D. Hubbard. And he brought them all there because the one thing he loved more than anything else was the All-American Futurity. He was a man who lived a lifetime any of us would be envious of. He lived a hundred lifetimes in his one. I've never seen someone who moved faster than he did around the world. He would be on a private jet the day after the All-American, flying halfway around the globe to go on a cruise through the Black Sea. This man lived a life that anyone would be envious of, but the one thing he never got to do was win that All-American Futurity. That was his white rabbit that he chased. And I'm sad to say he never got that. He's had world champion quarter horses, 
I was there the night that the downside sprung the giant upset in the champion of champions at Los Alamitos. He was great friends with Doc Allred, who owns Los Alamitos, and they had a rivalry in the sport of quarter horse racing whose track was better. It was outstanding. It was a it was a, a great friendship, but a, it was a contentious one, and they were always competing against each other, and they made that sport better. Um, and we all kind of knew it was happening. He'd been in ill health, but true to man who had a will to live like he did, um, he'd been on death's door for over a year, and, and I'd heard rumors a year ago that he was, you know, on his way out. And then, you know, that life force kind of brought him back a little bit, and he, he saw another trip around the sun, and he wasn't going to go easily. But uh, till the end, um, he was someone that, he was everyone's mentor that had the opportunity to work with him or under him. He made a lot of people rich. Um, he did a lot of things that were significant, Um and not just in the sport of horse racing. Let's not forget, one of the biggest sporting events in this century was the Battle of Bighorn, and he put that together. Um, he owned Bighorn um, He till the day he died. He uh, owned it in consort with you know, a couple of other people, including Doc Allred, but he put together, he was the one that brought Tiger Woods and Sergio Garcia. Those were the two biggest golfers on the planet, and they had the Battle of Bighorn under the lights, a Battle of Bighorn under the lights um, at his golf course, and that was his doing. I mean, it was... It was amazing to see all the things that he did in his life. And it was one of those people, if you could just make it in his orbit, it was great. And then he always called you by your first name. He called me Mike. He called me Mikey at times. And I, I didn't even know he knew who I was. I was just some guy there. You know, I was, I got to hold a microphone and talk about his race, but the event was his. And he was always um, just, just a great personality. And he, was, he could make you feel great um, when you were around him. And every year, my, my favorite party I'd go to every single year, and the man knew how to throw a, part, throw a party, my favorite party every year was on the rooftop at Rio Doso Downs, outside his crow's nest, after the All-American Futurity, when the winning connections would come up. Um, you know, me and my colleagues from TVG would come up to the rooftop um, after, you know, we'd been working all weekend. He'd have a barbecue out there. They'd be throwing around lobster tails and fillets. There would be an open bar with his bartender, Jimmy, pouring drinks for everybody. And we'd be up there well past sunset, you know, laughing, telling stories, and just having the greatest time you could ever possibly have. And I did that every year for 12 years, every Labor Day. And it's something that um, I'll cherish for the rest of my life. And no small part, because I just got to be in proximity to someone who was as great as R.D. Hubbard. And he passed away yesterday, and the news came out. And I do think that this industry, you know, we need to fly our flags half-mass for a while for him. And you know, we all need to be grateful and thankful for what he did for this game because it was a powerful impact. He will be missed, um, and I will, uh, yeah, I don't know if I was the right person to do that, but I felt like I had to say something. Also, I wanted to throw something else out there for you. Uh, you've noticed a lot of trotters on our airways early in the morning, and they're not in the U.S. These are Swedish standard breads, and we've been bringing you all the great racing action from the Scandinavian Peninsula. Now, if you're like me, you don't mind firing blind, but some of you might actually want to clue in on what the hell to do with these things. Well, I'm going to be joined by Peter Anderson um, on this podcast. Now, he is like me. He's a broadcaster. Um, he actually calls races as well. And he has been covering the sport of trotting in Sweden for quite some time. He actually works for a company there called ATG, which is very similar to what TVG is. They show races, they have a, an ADW arm, so on and so forth. So he's going to join us and he's going to help explain a little bit about the sport, give you just a few things you can sink your teeth into, and then we'll describe all these wagers. You may have seen you get push notifications on your TVG app, or you've seen us talking about them on the air. We've been promoting the V75 or the V86 or the V5, or it might sound a little foreign to you, but it's actually quite simple and very similar to the way we wager, uh, sequential wagering, pick fives, pick sixes, picks, pick eights in their case, and they have pools in the million. So we'll talk about that, and we'll try to give you a little something more to go on when it comes to all this trotting action that we see coming from abroad. Well, everyone, um, I need help, and I'm sure you need help as well. We've been showing um, a lot of trotters and standard bread racing action from the Scandinavian Peninsula. And if you, like me, have yet to see it before we've all been you know, locked away and there's cancellations in racing here in the U.S., then you probably need a little help. And we've got help in the form of Peter Anderson, who's joining us right now from Sweden. Peter, thank you so much for joining us here on the TVG podcast. And I teased a little bit about your background, but just let us know like what your role is in Swedish racing. 
All right. Thanks for having me on. Well, my role is, you know, it's a kind of a mixed role. I'm works uh, analyst, uh, reporter, uh, host. You know, pretty much everything that comes with uh, Swedish, especially harness racing. I do a little bit of thoroughbred racing as well, but uh, you know, the harness racing, especially the trotters. That's the main thing in uh, Sweden. So the, the the trotting action there is pretty pretty robust, and the wagering is pretty robust too. And there's a lot of similarities between U.S. harness racing and Swedish harness racing, but there's a few differences. And I think the first thing I want to ask you about before we get into some of the nuts and bolts of what we're playing at, there was a trotting race the other day. Actually, there's one of these a day when I'm covering it, and I was just taken aback. There was no sulkies. There 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 was no bike. The, there were actually jockeys on their back. Tell us about that because we've never seen that in the states. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's called Monte. It's actually French. It comes, it comes from France. So it's been along for a very long time in France, and then uh, it came also to Sweden a, a little bit more and more. It's gained some popularity, but in France, for example, the drivers are the same as the ones who are jockeys. So they they are really tough guys there. Uh, it, it's a much bigger sport there, but still making some noise in Sweden too. Let me ask you about just some of the vernacular and some of the, the wording, because I think U.S. gamblers get put off by not knowing what they're playing into. We see these gigantic pools for wagers that have initials and numbers. So there's the V75, the V86, the GS75. Just run through what those mean and, and what the, the letters and the numbers stand for so we can, because the pools are outstanding, and I think it's actually more familiar to what we're used to here in the U.S. than at, at first glance. The V uh, wagering. It's, it's the same as you have more or less with a pick five. A pick five would be called V5. V stands for win. Like in Swedish, in Swedish it's spelled with a V. So you, you can just think of the V as winning. For a country which is pretty small, you know, we're like 10 million people. And still the, you know, the, the turnovers are huge uh, when you think of uh, how small the population is. And it's because this kind of betting form attracts all kinds of people because if you're a small country and if you're going to have a huge success you must have something that appeals to a lot of people so that's what's been very successful with these uh, v uh, wagering and especially v75 is the, really the number one that that's like paying for pretty much everything inside of the horse racing with the price money and everything that's seven races you get a payout for seven six or five correct and that also attracts people you know all, anybody from uh, very, you know, interested professional with betting on horses, but also people who maybe only watch the races on Saturdays or maybe even only watch the results. So it attracts a lot of different kind of people. And then you have the V86. That's the second biggest uh, wagering form. That's on Wednesdays. And the eight means it's eight races. And the payout is for uh, eight correct seven correct and six correct and then you have the um, you have on Sunday it's called uh, Grand Slam 75 it's seven races you get paid for six seven and five correct and the Grand Slam means if you're the only one who picks seven correct you're guaranteed a payout of one million dollars more or less you could say 10 million Swedish crowns that's like a million American dollars if it's a V64, which is Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, then it's six races, six correct pays out, as well as five and four. So that's how the structure is. And the V75 has really established itself as, as one of the biggest pools, and not just in Sweden. This is one of the biggest pools anywhere in the world. I think um, I'm looking at last the last weekend in March, it got over $11 million U.S. I mean, th- and this is not a rare occurrence for it to be multiple millions of dollars, right? Yeah, that's right. It's really, really stable. It's really popular. The races are broadcasted on national television live every Saturday. You know, we, I also do a podcast with, with a colleague of mine. We, we record every Sunday night. That's when, when the race cars come for the Saturday. So people are interested almost a week before the races actually take place. And then we talk about these v center five all week long. And on the way, we... We have the V86 on the Wednesday, which uh, attracts a lot of attention, of course. But people keep talking about V75, and then it increases all the way to the Saturday. 
So it's like a, you know, it's like a rhythm that we have where B seventy five dictates, you know, what what people talk about within the horse racing and and the betting on it. See, in the U.S., our equivalent is the pick six, but we're not. We're we don't have a rhythm. The rhythm is beholden to the race schedule and the results of each day because we race so many days at a racetrack. You could race four or five days a week, and then the pick six will build and get hit as it goes. So we don't have that same rhythm where you can look a week out and be like, "Hey, I'm playing that pick six next Saturday." You're just kind of it. You know what the races are when the entries come entries come in, but. Mm-hmm you're very reactive because the money may or may not be there. It really depends on what the horses and the horse players did. The thing with the V75 is it moves around on a different track every Saturday. So it goes around the country and there are different divisions uh, within, you know, the V75. You have, you know, depending on how much earnings the horses have, they compete against each other in a division. And then eventually you have finals where horses from all over the country a race against each other in the finals. So in this way, also, people who only follow horse racing a little bit still know some horses without help, you know. They, they know some horses. They, they, the same horses come back and for the finals or, and so on, you know. They still need some help with some races, but some races, they, they solve it on their own if they watch only the Saturday racing. Yeah. So uh, everything goes together, the sports and the betting. Like, it's... It, it goes together like it should be. That's great. I mean, that's that's fantastic. Um, so covering what little amount of, of racing I have um, in Sweden and a lot more in the last you know six weeks than we ever have, the only driver I've had any luck with is Bjorn Goop. <laughs> Bjorn Goop has been my guy. Yeah. Give me some names of people to look for. Just give me a handful of drivers and trainers that, you know, you keep an eye on and that can really help if, you know, going on limited knowledge, you know, someone in the U.S. can pick up, look in the program and say, hey, you know what, that's my guy. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Bjorn Goop is, uh, you know, you're, you're coming a long way if you just know his name. He, he's a he's a superstar. Like he he's always a factor within the race. You never know what he's gonna do. He can be aggressive. He can, you know, trick you from behind. He can, you know, he he does stuff you didn't even know of. You know, so he he's he's definitely a top guy. Uh, the other top guy, I think, two guys that are really the best. The other one, his name in Swedish is Orjan Kielström, but you probably read it like Orjan Kielström. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was born to do this. Like, he has something in his hands that, you know, I think almost nobody ever had before. Like, he can tell how much horse he has, and he can tell how much horse everyone else has, even if they're way back. Like, he, he he's, it's like he has a supercomputer in his head. He always knows... Uh, how to win the races with the smallest margin like he's not even he's not even only winning that particular race he's also going to win the next race because he's going to try to win with it uh, and use the horse as little as possible it's like almost it, it makes it he makes it a sport itself to win <laughs> with a small margin because he he doesn't want to push the horse too too much. That's brilliant. It, then it might lose its form a little bit for the next time. You know, you know how it works. Yeah. So those two, uh, they are the best. Then we have Olf Olson. He's a machine. He's actually the guy who win the most races in a year because nobody can outwork him. Like, yeah. if if you have two treadmills next next to each other, like either he's gonna win or he's gonna die on that treadmill. Like nobody's going to outwork him. He's crazy like that. And also, he's very consistent. He makes very few mistakes. He can ride all kinds of horses. He wins a lot of old It's just as simple as that. It's like Jen Goop and Ora Shisham. They have just a little extra something in the bigger races. And then we have uh, Eric Audelson. He's also very good. He's starting to drive a little bit more again as his children are getting a little bit older. So, he wants to travel a bit more now again. He's also also very well prepared. Like he always knows if he can win a race and how he has to do it with the horse. So Eric Alderson is definitely a guy to look after for. And I, I say one more guy. There are many guys. Uh, Richard Skoglund is like a old Folson Jr. Mm-hmm. He's also the guy you can't outwork. Uh, but he's a little bit less experienced yet as the other guys I mentioned. And then the last guy is Jepson. Call you on Jepson. He's uh, 
he's like a little bit like Jan Goof. Like you never know what he's gonna do, and it's hard to predict exactly what he's gonna do in a race. But he he's sure gonna try to win it in one way or another. That's outstanding. Okay, so you've you've given us you've given us a little something to to delve into. Then um, that's excellent. Uh, one last question I want to ask you before uh, we let you go on your way, and I really want to thank you for your time. I, I said I was gonna have you for five minutes. I've had you for almost twenty now, um, <laughs> but. Uh, one last thing I did want to ask you is, um, so we've delved into the standard bread game in Sweden. What, what it, you said thoroughbred racing is a smaller sport in Sweden than, than harness racing, but do you guys pay attention to the thoroughbred racing elsewhere, like in elsewhere in Europe and in the, in the States? Yeah. Of course the people who are, who are involved in the thoroughbred racing in Sweden are looking of course into to the bigger countries uh, like the U.S. and all the big races in Japan and Australia and, you know, Dubai. And it's a lot about tradition and culture. We don't really have that in Sweden. It's actually the same thing everywhere in Scandinavia. And I think it's a lot about, you know, uh, climate. It's mm-hmm. harder to, to train thoroughbred horses in Sweden with the winters and everything. Yeah. And it's also, you, you need to have a jockey and you can't just, train the horse yourself maybe in in the forest or you know standard breads is much easier like in sweden there's a big mix you have the professional trainers for like two 200 horses maybe and then you have the the guy with a daytime job who drives horses in the evening you know who has maybe two horses or something and that's much easier to do with the standard breads than with a thoroughbred peter it's been excellent talking to you thank you so much for joining us hey my pleasure all right, uh, that was Peter Anderson. As uh, I hope he gave you as much as he just gave me, uh, as far as uh, firing on these races from Sweden. All right, we are going to take a break. When I return on this podcast, um, we will talk to Dan Blacker, as I promised before, and um, we'll take a look inside the life of you know one how things are going in Southern California for a trainer, and two um, you know how he got here and all those stories I was talking about earlier. We'll be back. It's Brittany Ayrton here. If there's any way you missed hearing the Gary Stevens and Mike Smith podcast episode, be sure to catch our exclusive broadcast of the podcast available now on the Watch TVG app. Don't know about the Watch TVG app yet? Oh, you're missing out. Be sure to head to tvg.com slash promos slash watch to learn about getting TVG and TVG2 in crystal clear high definition from the comfort of your own home using only an Amazon Fire Stick, Apple TV, or Roku. You'll also gain access to award-winning features and interviews in the on-demand section. So be sure to visit tvg.com today to learn more about Watch TVG. Well, everyone, I am joined on the line right now by my good friend and uh, husband of my colleague, Christina Blacker. It is Dan Blacker joining us. Dan, how you doing? I'm really well, thanks, Mike. Well, it's it's a weird time we're in, and I just kind of wanted to get, before we get into some of the more fun stuff we'll talk about, um, I do want to ask you what it's like for you as a trainer and operating the stable and, and what it's like been going into Stan, Santa Anita every day in the midst of this pandemic. We haven't had racing for several weeks now. What's it like on the backstretch? You know what? In some ways, everything's the same. And in other ways, things are a little different. You know, So, I mean, the things that are the same uh with the day-to-day training it is very similar like we all come in and do our uh, look after the horses get them ready uh the riders go out we train and in terms of what my employees are doing every day it's like the same routine as normal but a little different everyone's uh adhering to these the protocol that Santa Anita have put in place with the mask the social distancing we're all very aware of uh, the new way to act and behave around each other at the track. And, you know, we're all a big family at San Anita. So, yeah, that when I see other trainers, we're all amicable with each other and talk uh, with, you know, distance between each other. Um, whereas when I go to the market, everyone doesn't want to, you don't want to catch eyes with anyone. It's kind of a weird vibe. But um, at the track, overall, it's kind of the same business as normal, but with, as I said, with all these, this protocols and advice that we've been given to keep, to keep in place to keep us safe. 
I mean, for the horses, there's got to be, you know, some good and some bad. I'm sure there are some horses that could have used a few weeks without feeling the pressure of having to race them. And I'm sure you have horses that, you know, are ready to run through the bit right now and are knocking down the barn door and you got nowhere to put them. Yeah, I had five entered on the weekend that uh, that we they, the racing oh. got shut down. Oh. So it was a real, I, um, that was uh, all on one day. And a small barn like me, that was a big day. So it was real. It was really disappointing not to be able to run those horses. I think I had five entered on one day, four favorites. So it was oh. like, not, yeah, I know it was brutal. Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so obviously those horses, it's it's kind of tough. The trick of getting with with uh, training horses is um, just beginning to peak on one particular day and run their best race. Um, because if you think about it, like. Yeah, a horse's peak could be Saturday or Sunday or Monday. You want them to peak on that day, and it's all about kind of gearing them up to re- to, to to peak on that day. So, like, going from having them entered to having them scratch and then preparing them for a race that you don't even know what the date of that race is is really hard because you don't really know what to do. Do you really back off them? Do you keep them going? Do you, how do you change that routine and what they're fed and uh, the, the, how often they work, how far they work, how fast they work. All these things you've got to kind of bear in mind and try and make a plan uh, moving forward. And it's hard, you know, and especially, and then you have to talk to the owners and try and um, convey what you're doing um, and whether that's the best thing for them, you know. So it's a lot of things to think about. Yeah, that I mean, that's, yeah, it's it's re- it's tricky, man. It's tricky, and I mean, you you say you have a small barn, but you have a decent sized stable. I mean, you're you're a pretty competitive stable these days. Yeah, it's been a kind of up and up and down year so far. I mean, we went out of the year with the Breeders' Cup runner last year. It's really great, and um, you know, this year I've had all the horses have run really well. Just been unlucky. I had a lot of seconds and thirds. We're like sixty percent in the money, but um, it just hasn't like the wins haven't like clicked in. So. But I had a lot of horses that were really live just coming into that last bit, and then we didn't get to run, so it's just a bit frustrating. Yeah, and um, you have but, four uh, favorites. I mean, that's you know, luck goes your way. You win four of the five races. You know, luck. You know, <laughs> luck is luck is even. You you know, you win one or two, which is still a great day. And then you just well, got we to get none of them. We were joking because Christina was on air. Uh, she, my wife, she does her broadcast from our bedroom, and we were saying I was going to be watching the races from our bed. Is sitting in my dressing gown, and if I had won more than one race, I would have, you know, you could have panned around, and I would have held up three fingers <laughs> sitting in the bed. <laughs> oh, TVG would have never recovered. That's fantastic. <laughs> in my Hugh Hefner dressing gown. <laughs> right. I, yeah. I, I I I sleep as I came into this world. Um, at any rate, um, that's a, okay. So that's a good segue to the 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 good old days. So I, you know, one of the things that you and I, um. I, I owe you a debt of gratitude that a lot of people don't know this is that the summer I got divorced, I actually lived in your apartment in Redondo beach when you and Christina, cause you would take the barn down to Del Mar and she would live in Del Mar yeah. for the seven weeks. So you had an apartment in Redondo beach where you two would, were living. It was the summer you got married and that was yeah. empty. And you just let me live there for seven weeks while I was trying to figure out my divorce. <laughs> and I still, I still owe Wait. you that. I still owe you divorce rent from that summer. Well, that was a sweet house. I mean, that apartment, oh, good times. That was some of the best years. I mean, Christine and I had that great apartment. It was so much fun living on the beach, training and, at Hollywood Park. Yeah, tra- good times. Training at Hollywood, living right there in Redondo. I mean, these the Hollywood Park days, I mean, I was doing this with Todd Shrupp, the last podcast we recorded. I, I am still in denial that Hollywood Park is gone. That is one of my favorite <laughs> places on the planet Earth. But especially because, and I'm taking nothing away from Arcadia and Pasadena, and I know you live up there now with Christine and you're raising the girls there, and that's where she was you know, raised, and my wife grew up in Arcadia, and I'm taking nothing away from there. But when Hollywood Park had, had so many dates, and there were all these people that lived in Redondo, Manhattan, I mean, that was our stomping grounds, right? The beaches, like the, it, the South It was Bay. so much fun. Oh. Yeah, and you know what? I grew up... I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere in England. And there I am. I'm like training racehorses at Hollywood Park. I'm living on the beach in L.A. I'm like, is this real life? And every night I'd finish training and if, if like something in the barn got me down, I'd be like a horse getting hurt or something. I'd be like, oh, this job just gets me so down. And then I'd leave the barn at like 4.30 in the afternoon, 5, 5 p.m., drive back to Manhattan Beach and then you come over the crest of that hill and you just see the Pacific Ocean and you just all your 
all of your depression would just lift off your shoulders and you'd be like, yep, this is actually not so bad. So, oh, my God. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, I really miss it. Yeah, I think but, we, all uh, miss, I, we all miss the West Side. I love Side. Santa Anita, too. Right. Well, I mean, Santa Anita is, the, you know, it's got the, the most picturesque setting in the world and you've got the, the San Gabriel Mountains there and it's got all this history. And I think everyone for years pictured Hollywood Park as the third track behind Del Mar and Santa Anita. It was like, well, what do you like better, Santa Anita mm-hmm. or Del Mar? And they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, Hollywood Park. But that was the exact opposite of how a lot of us saw it. Because for me, I came to California in the early days of TVG. Hollywood Park was our home track. We didn't get to go to Santa Anita. Right. And there was only a handful. It took me seven years to get to Del Mar after moving to California. I mean, it was <laughs> I came here in 2001. It was 2008. The first summer I, I got to go down and work at, in Del Mar. So Hollywood Park was home and I yeah. missed the good old West Side days. I mean, that was I mean, I, it, you were good to see two or three people from TVG and then another four or five people from Hollywood Park any given night at Poncho's there in Manhattan Beach. Any given yeah. night. You, I mean, you could walk in, there'd be at least, you know, two dozen margaritas inspired by racing that day. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird because L.A. is not a big, I mean, it's as a city, like Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach are not far from Pasadena, like in distance. But in terms of like all the people, all my friends that I had that lived over there, I literally never see them anymore. Oh, they might as well live. They might as well live in Alaska. I mean, it would be easier to get on a plane and fly to Kansas to see them (laughs) than to drive from Arcadia to the beach. Yeah, and I used to do it when I first moved my horses to Santa Anita. It would take me thirty-five minutes from the apartment in Hermosa Beach. Take me thirty-five minutes in the morning, straight shot. I'd fly. I'd love the drive. Turn the radio on. Drink my coffee, and then coming home would be like minimum two hours. And by the end of the trip, I would just be like ready to kill someone and eventually i just said we just gotta go can't take it it's no good so So i want to go back i want to go back early days on you because um not too far okay well a lot of people don't know tom no absolutely not tom morley (laughs) tom morley and you are very good friends he was the best man at your wedding um and then of course there's well i mean i don't know if the word best has been used in that well in that context (laughs) before but i mean go ahead I, and he's and I mean he's he's so British. He makes you sound like you're from Kansas. I mean it's he's got he is. It's like talk. I, it's unbelievable when you talk to him. I think one of the second or third times I ever hung out with the first time I ever met him was your wedding, and I think the following summer because um, he's married to to Maggie Wolfen. You know, I'll tell you a secret. He actually he puts it all on. He actually sounds like Russell Brand. Have you ever heard of Russell Brand? Yeah. So he's he's got he's he's a little he's 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 a little more of a slack jawed yokel than he puts on, huh? <laughs> No, I'm kidding. Well, he was very, at, so very I, sincere, Tom. Very sincere. Everything that comes out of his mouth is the truth. You know, he's a real, he's a really great guy. Very um, honest and um, straight shooter. Yeah, tells but, how it is. But, what, but the second time I ever saw him was it. He was living at a house in Saratoga. when he and Maggie got together. They're now married with uh, two two girls now, right? I believe. Yeah. And we walked in, and it was like me and Tom Cassidy and somebody else. We we're like getting, you know, going to go to dinner. We we're just kind of stopping by and saying hi. He's like, and, and like the thickest British accent you ever heard. He looked at Tom. He goes, I fucking killed it to karaoke last night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, good. I can hang with this guy. Because <laughs> it sounds so serious. I mean, he sounded like he was like selling secrets, right? I'm like, he was like a, like a, like a secret agent, but he was talking about staying in karaoke. But so you, so you and Tom go back a long way. And then you and Boomer. Uh, Rosenfeld, who you met uh, in the Flying Star program, you kind of you guys had like this little rat pack running around in in your early twenties, and you must have had a lot of fun in those days because that's a fun group of guys. Yeah, it was really. We had a. We were just lucky. We had a great group of. We had a great crew on the Flying Star, and I had met Tom, but like I didn't know Tom at all before we we started the Flying Star, um, and so even though we we had a lot of friends in common, we're not really good friends. Um, and then we got on the Flying Star and we were kind of the, the two, the only two British guys. So it was kind of like we had a little bit of a rivalry to start as, you know, because we were the only two British guys. And then like we realized that we we're mates and put all that behind us. But um, yeah, I mean, we had a great group because we, all of us, you know, all of the guys that I was with have become, gone on to be super successful in the industry. And you know, we got Craig Roundsfell. He has his own you know, bloodstock, com- bloodstock company and Tom Morley. Um, trainer Connor Foley, who's a bloodstock agent in Kentucky, Ben Wajafoy, who uh, is a bloodstock agent in France, Jerry Duffy, he's the manager of uh, the Darley Farm in Kentucky. I mean, they're just 
all guys that are just uh, gone on to do really big things, and we're all great, great mates to this day. So we all talk a lot. We have a WhatsApp group that we that gets daily uh, memes and uh, various uh, cuss words, but it's uh, all in good in good uh, in good fun. So your horse that was in the Breeders' Cup, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Boomer buy that horse? Yeah, we yeah Boomer was the one that picked him out. We were both at the the yearling sale at Keeneland in September, um, and uh, but yeah, Boomer he was hit sixteen at Keeneland book one. So it was just a lesson of being in the right place at the right time. And, but now Tom never came to California. You and Boomer here were, were in California. He worked for Drysdale, I think around the same time <laughs> yeah. you were working for Richard Mandela, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Tom Boomer was working for uh, Neil Drysdale, uh, living at Neil's house in Redondo. And then I was working for Mandela and, uh, yeah, we were both like, it was fun times, but like working for those guys, it was hard, you know, like they don't, it's, it's, it's not an easy job. You, they, they expect a lot from you. you get very, very few days off. And, um, you know, it's, it forms who you are, uh, like moving forward as a, as a professional person on your own, you know, so it was all, uh, you know, it was a time that was really hard. I found that tough working for Richard, but like, I needed to go through it and uh, I needed to uh, learn a lot at that stage. And I'm glad I did it. So the thing that I learned from Boomer, so I went to Australia a couple times and both times I went there, I saw Boomer and McCall and uh, that's his wife, um, who was uh, the daughter of the late Mike Mitchell. And I remember something that he said that really stuck out to me because he'd seen racing everywhere through the flying star program with you. And then being here in the States working for Neil and he's from Australia and he's, you know, very well versed in the racing circuits there, obviously. And he does, you know, a lot of work at the sales in, in Australia. And I think it was the English sale we were at. And he was saying that, and, and this really made it, it kind of made everything come together for me. And I never, I think you'd know it, but you don't really know it until someone puts it in that way is he was talking about the horses in California. And he said that he goes, the horses in California are the fittest horses in the world. He goes, if you yeah. put a horse, you put a racehorse in, in California, you better be dead fit to win because yeah. they will train on them, train on them, train on them because they do not throw away a race. And it makes sense because we're on an Island in California, right? We don't have, yeah. if you're at Belmont, you can send a horse to Delaware. You can send them to parks. You can send them down to Maryland. You can send them to Monmouth. You know, if they're really bad, you can send them up to finger lakes, but you have options, right? So, a lot of yeah. those trainers, they'll they'll race a horse into shape. They'll 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 throw one out there. But in California, you don't have any options. And if you got it, you and you were just saying the premium on getting a horse fit for a race and having him peak on the right day. In California, this is probably the only jurisdiction in the world you have to do that every time you enter a horse. For sure, it's that's one of the most challenging things about training here. Is there's no you only have one option. You have one spot for your horse once a month or maybe twice a month, and you have you better be ready to roll. Because if you're not, there's going to be a, three other horses that are going to be ready to roll, and they're going to be they're going to you know wipe the floor with you. You know, back east, a horse can win off its merits if you have it in the right spot and you have it at eighty or ninety percent fit. It'll just win because it's it's better than the other horses. But here, you got if you you got to have it in the right spot and you have to have it razor sharp fit. Because if you don't, you're not going to win. You may run run well, but you've got to be really sharp, and it's it's hard to get them to peak at the right time because you, you know you know the more you train these horses and to keep them fit the more likely are they gonna you go you do a bit too much and they and they uh they they fade a little so it's it's a real balancing act and that's what's hard about training here. all right i got i gotta ask you about christina because i i can't help it um so what's okay. it what's it been like for for you to have her in the house working from home for the last six weeks you get to go out go to the barn see the horses she's inside with the girls all day, every day with the studio. Yeah. How's that? How's, how's that going for you? Well, I make sure when I leave the house in the morning, I've got a padlock and I put it on the door and make sure she stays in the house. Ah. I don't want to go out messing, you know, going out. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously she does spend the entire time in the house. Uh, I mean, she's with the kids um, and then gets done uh, and goes on air in the afternoons, but we don't, you know, we normally have a lot of, we have nannies that come and help us with the kids and normally so like right now we don't have any of those people um and so i get done at work in the morning and morning and come straight home and she is studying with the kids doing other things and and then they uh she just locks herself in the bedroom and then it's 
I'm in charge for the rest of the day. So then the house goes into total chaos. But we have this sort of this doorway into the bedroom, which is like the doorway into sort of the the studio, which is all quiet and it's been very strange. But uh, we are managing fine. Christina is a super professional, as you know. And uh, well, I don't know how she, she does it. everything. I, I have, I have my two of my kids. I have three kids as well, but I have two teenagers who I, I barely even see. They take care of themselves. It's like they're, they're here and they're not. So it's not hands-on. Like you guys have three little girls. I have, I have a 10 month old, which is a handful, but I have one. Yeah. And I don't know how she, I don't know how she balances her day because she puts in a load of work. Um, she probably, I would put her and Matt Carruthers as one and one a, as far as how much prep they put into each show. Right. We all know I'm yeah, okay. I'm a lazy person. Okay, now right? we're getting into the good stuff. Okay, so you've already answered my first question. I was gonna ask you who puts in the most hours uh in preparation at PVG? Christina Christina or Matt. Christina or Matt. It's it's one of those two that from working with them on a regular basis, I can tell. Um just because and it's not even um it's not even how it's just the wealth of information, just the sheer mass of, of information that she brings. It's not available on the page. Right. Um, there are, you know, those of us, I, I go in there, I wing a lot of my shows. I hope my boss isn't listening. I wing a lot of them. I really do. Um, if it's a big show, I prep, but I'm also usually not an analyst. You know, she's a, she plays the role of an analyst a lot of times. And then when she's reporting, because she's so dialed in at Santa Anita, she knows everyone there. You train there. She's been there her entire life. She has so many connections just by default. You know, most of our information is going to go through her and we all have certain connections. We all know people, Right. We all have inns in different mm-hmm. barns, but she probably has the most just the sheer number of connections that she has. So she's always going to have the most amount of work um, in Southern California when reporting. And then when she does her analyst work, she ha- she she brings a wealth of information to the set that I mean, I've, I, I bring about five percent of that. <laughs> I've like, well, I think <laughs> I think that's one of the most common misconceptions about what people think about her, the way she does her job. You know, she's. She, a lot of people think she just gets up on her and starts talking and reading Nauticue or something, but she puts in so many hours to in preparation for these shows. It's insane, and uh, she's so over-prepared for a lot of it, but you know, I think that's why she's so good at what she does, and she's a really good handicapper. I know there's a lot of people up out in Twitter land that won't agree, but, um, uh, you know, I mean, one example, like over the last few weeks, I mean, over the last few years, sorry, we, I've always said, like, you should play more tickets, play more tickets. But she doesn't really gamble at all. Yeah. Um, and I think that's actually people, they say, well, she's never going to make a good handicap if she's not betting her own money. But I think actually it's formed her into a better handicapper because she doesn't let that, that get control of her. She approaches looking at PPs in a really analytical way and doesn't let her own uh, emotions uh, get in the way of making her selections. And, like, when you're... I think you're betting your own money. I think sometimes you can maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but like maybe make the wrong decisions based on your emotion or uh, right. uh, yeah, feelings that, about a certain. You way. have that component that can that can cloud things. I so the funny that. thing is, it's like we, the last few weeks, like we were because we've been sitting at home. I mean, like oh, we've got to play ticket, and we've been on Zoom or whatever with a couple guys, other trainers. We're like, oh, we're going to play the, we're going to play the pick six. At, uh, at, uh, or pick five at Fauna or something. So we're like, Christina's going to do a ticket. So Christina does a ticket. Boom, it hits. Then we do like, so we did the rainbow pick six at Gulfstream. Boom, hits it. <laughs> it hit like 20 grand or something like that, right? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, we had it split up, a bunch of us, but we were all going crazy. And then we played the, we played, Christina played the, uh, oh, it was the uh, pick five at Oaklawn. And we were going to hit it, but the will pays all, all sucked apart from one horse and guess which horse won <laughs> the long shot and we all and it paid like something really big as well so she's like crushing it right now and uh it's uh it's really make it's really fun for all of us to to have her as a uh an advisor in our handicapping because she's certainly uh a lot more accurate than i am no she does she doesn't she doesn't mess around she she definitely comes to the table as, as well prepared and it doesn't matter the show, right? She'll do that on a, on a Thursday afternoon or Pacific classic day. She's going to come with, with a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. The other thing is like of me as a trainer, like she'll like sometimes if I have a horse in that day and I'll go to work in the morning, I'll train, I'll come back and I'll come back and I'll say, cause I know Christine looked at all the PPs that morning while I'm at work and I'll come back in at lunchtime and I'll be like, Hey, what do you think of my, my, my runner today? And she'll just look at me and I'll be like, 
what? And she'd be like, mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, what? I'd be like, what? It's got a live tongue. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. You're like, like babe, oh, now man. is not the time to be honest. No, now I'm all depressed. And then, then but on the flip side, sometimes I got, like, I got no shot today. And she'd be like, no, I think you got a shot. I'm like, really? Oh, I'll do it. And then I'll get all, like, pumped up about it. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting uh, uh, relationship that we have. And um, in terms of the, the professional outside of it, molding into our personal side of it. Because you can't really get, because my wife works at TVG. Um, so we both work in the same company. So we're, I'm, I'm in a similar situation as you guys because you both work in, in racing. So, I mean, there are, it is a, I mean, do you guys make a conscious effort? Like, no racetrack talk today. Do you ever set aside a time, okay, we're going the next 36 hours without mentioning the track, okay? Do you ever do anything like that? Mm, no. <laughs> you just but, can't. No, but, like, um, she's so devoted to our children. Not that I'm not. I mean, I... Yeah, they were right, I guess. Uh, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but she's so devoted to them that as soon as the camera goes off, as soon as she's done her work and she's the camera does the work and does her show, bang, she's like 100% into the children. And I'll come back from the barn or whatever and I'll be like, oh my God, I'm so pissed off. I've got this effing horse and she's looking at me like oh really? hey, and then she goes back to the children i know yeah. that she's not listening to me at all because she's <laughs> like focused 100 percent on the children as good as she is on tv and tvg she's like 10 times better mother i mean she's insane mom oh they're they're definitely the be- they're definitely the stronger sex women they're they 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 are a hundred lengths better than us um there's no doubt about it uh okay it's time for are you ready for the gauntlet known as cinco to thinko Oh, yeah? Do you know what this is? So it's basically five questions. It's five questions, quiz show format. Um, Okay. Four regular questions. And then the fifth question is their Kent or Corey bonus question. So the answer to the question is always going to be Corey Nakatani or Kent DeSormo. So you have a (laughs) 50-50 shot at the last question. But the other four are normal, okay? Okay. Can I ask you a question afterwards? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) But I get the first five. All right, okay, cool. Okay. I'm down. Um, all right, Cinco to Thinko with Dan Blacker. First question, Dan, and you better get this one right. Your wife, Christina Blacker, was in which sorority at the University of Southern California? <laughs> she was a DG at Delta Gamma. Delta Gamma. Good job. Well yeah. done. I actually texted her earlier today. I said, is there anything that he's not going to know? And her first suggestion was her middle name. <laughs> it's like now, if he gets that wrong, I don't know if you'll forgive him. <laughs> uh, is All that right. one of the questions? You're one for one. You're one for one. Okay, second question. Uh, there's always a question about me. I got to in- inject myself into these questions. Um, which one of my colleagues did I make eat a Mrs. Pasture's horse cookie on the air on live television? Mm. Uh, I don't know the answer to that one. You got to guess. guess. Yeah, guess. <laughs> Who did I make eat a cookie? Eat a horse cookie on the air? Um, did they actually eat it? They they absolutely they lost a bet to me on the air, and they, I made them eat it on the air. Uh, Todd Schrapp. No, we're sorry. It's oh. Nicholas oh. J. The Sarge Hines. The oh, Sarge. Okay. <laughs> oh, Sarge. Although sorry, he Sarge. he said he was you know he skipped breakfast, so it actually worked out for him. Hoorah. Right. Okay. Okay. One for two. You're all right. This one. This one okay. might be a little tough for you because this might predate your awareness of TVG. So you're British. That's, you're British. I, I well, I I'm very aware. I was aware of TVG for I guess 2004. That's the first time mm, I watched. This TVG. is cutting it close. All right. So um, you're British. You've been on TVG a time or two. Um, we've had mm-hmm. Simon Callahan on. He's British. We've had many Brits. Yep. Simon Bray is a, a dual citizen, British and of course, uh, American now, um, as he has, mm-hmm. has two passports. Who was the first Brit, Brit, citizen of the United Kingdom, to grace the TVG airwaves? I'm, I mean, it's what, a, you mean as an interview or as an employee? Uh, I'll even give you that. It's as an employee. Ooh. So, I, I probably know it, and I just, I'm going to kick myself. Um... Millie Ball? No, sorry. The correct answer is a good guess, though. The correct answer is Claudia Simon. Claudia Simon. Do you remember Claudia? No. 
Back in the, she actually, for, I think she had a short stint. The only reason I thought you might know her is she had a short stint on Top of the Pops in Great Britain back in the day before she came to TVG. So um, I'm going to look that up. Yeah. So yeah, she disappeared. I mean, she disappeared like a fart in the wind, man. She, she was, she, Todd Shrub said this last week, and I totally believe she was 10 years too early. If she came 10 years later, she would be ruling horse racing. She was, Why? she was, because she was one of the most popular people we ever had on the air. The camera absolutely loved her. She had this transcendent personality just kind of reached through the screen. But I just don't think TVG was big enough for her at the time. And yeah. she just kind of lost interest real fast. And she was out of there for after maybe three years. I think she was gone. But she just was. Just imagine if we had like 2020, you had like Claudia and Chris Harrison. Bang. TVG. Right. Right. I mean, seriously, that was the thing. It was Chris Harrison and Creighton Bradar were the, were the one and one a, that was the, that was the starting duo that they built the whole network around was, was Chris Harrison and, and Kate and Bradar. That was the first dynamic duo, Claudia Simon. And, um, she was one of the main hires as well. All right. Um, so you're one for three, but, um, I think mm. you'll get this one because there's some significance. I think, think significance in your life. Which year? Okay, the, so Delmar, I'm, I'm missing Delmar. Delmar, opening day always has record attendance, right? Yeah. So which year is the single day attendance record at Delmar stand? Which opening day? Opening day of what year? I'm looking for the year. <laughs> I know this is like going to be a quiz like in, that I might actually know think, the think answer. Significant, so think random. significant years in, in, in Delmar history for you, Dan Blacker. Oh, okay. I guess uh, 2012. 2012. Ding, ding, ding. That was the year I was living in your house. I watched that opening day from, what's that Irish bar on Hermosa Pier? Like right by right by your house in Redondo? Tennessee. Oh, Hennessy's. I mean, I don't know any Irish bars in, in <laughs> what's it called? I think of Tennessee's, right? I think I was, I was in Tennessee's. Yeah. Tennessee's. <laughs> um, all right, so one, four, so you're two for four. All right, two for four. This is not bad. This is that's pretty pretty average. I mean, a lot of it's tough for people to get more than two. Um, and final question: the Kent or Corey bonus question. So Kent and Corey, Corey and Kent, the two of them, very similar jockeys, mm-hmm. right? I, they're two of my favorite jockeys of all time. Um, they're ranked right next to each other on the all-time wins list at Del Mar. Okay, and okay. the jockeys in front of them and behind them have all retired. So they're going to be next to each other right now in the standings. They're only separated by five wins, and they're ranked fifth and sixth all-time wins at Del Mar. But which one of them is ranked in front? They're only separated by five. They're ranked fifth and sixth. Who has more wins at Del Mar? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Corey. No, Kent. He just passed him in 2019. <laughs> this it was this year. So Corey retired um, because of the you know, because of the injury, which was very unfortunate. Uh, and Corey's second all time in stakes victories behind only Chris McCarron. And but they ranked fifth and sixth. And Kent just passed him in 2019. Um, and he's in front of him by five. And they're probably going to be oh. fifth and sixth for a long, long time. And and it's going to be years and years and years before another rider I could think of can come up the ranks and get those wins because. I think behind them, it's like Alex Solis and Pat Valenzuela and Gary Stevens. And I mean, like you keep going out, it's like, like none of these guys are riding anymore. And the ones in front of them, it's Lafitte and Shoemaker and, and, and those Hall of Famers. So, yeah. Yes. So they're going to be fifth and sixth for, for a while there. But uh, all right. You did, you did pretty good. You did two out of two out of four, two out of four. You got, and you got Christina's sorority right. So that was the important one. Who do you, my question now, who uh, do you think, other than yourself, is the best uh, handicapper at TVG? The best handicapper? Yeah. Who picks the most winner? Caleb Keller. Really? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. The guy. He's like, I, I, I there are very because he, he's the guy that's going to pick up the training pattern on a Gennady Dorachenko horse because it matched <laughs> the one that he used to win the Louisiana Derby at seventy-five to one eleven years ago. Right? He's the kid that picks that horse. He's the only guy who's going to see it. And it's not stuff you can look up in a book. It's just, it goes into that beautiful mind of his and it just goes through the gears. But I would, yeah, I would say Caleb Keller. I'll tell you something you failed at though. What did I fail at? No, he failed at teaching me golf. Oh yeah. I was a lost lost cause. He just gave up after like two lessons. He just said, you are shit. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And he's a really patient guy. He is, he's like a... I don't know. He's like a two or a three handicap. He's a really good golfer. He played in high school. He wanted to make try to get his, his tour card at one point. He takes it. That no, I'm seriously. just kidding. He didn't. But we he did give me a few lessons. But it was uh, it was a lost cause. I, I'm terrible, terrible golfer. 
All right. But uh, he is a very good golfer. Dan, um, I just want to say thanks for coming on the program and uh, do take care of um, that family of yours. I know Christina probably takes care of you more than you take care of her, but the, and the, the three little girls, you enjoy 100%. being a hundred percent. You enjoy being a girl dad. You've got three little girls. You enjoying it? Yeah. People do, you know, people often ask me, oh, you're going for a boy. Uh, the answer to that question is a hundred percent. No. But the other thing is I, I really have no, there's no, I never think, Oh, I have this pining for a, Another penis in the house, you know. I just think, I, <laughs> I totally agree. I've got, I've got it one, I've got one boy and two girls, or no, I've got one girl and two boys. I'm sorry, going backwards here. I've got one girl and two boys, but my first was a girl, and I remember after having her, I remember thinking, I was like, I could have all girls. I'd be totally fine with this. Like, I'm so, I like, I, I love my daughter. Like, she's the greatest thing, and she's 16 now. I will say this though, you are going to have three teenage daughters living under one roof at the same time. So yeah. buckle up for that. Yeah, it's gonna um, it's gonna be tough, and it's they're all it's, all three of them are so different. It's it's really amusing watching their personalities develop. I'm very thankful that my that their mother is such a good mother because she picks up the slack, you know. That I well, she's so even keeled too because you're, I mean, all, all it seems like all three of your daughters, from what I know of them, have very strong personalities. Margot came out with a strong personality, right? And they do come out that way. Yeah. There's no, there's no like, oh, they were raised. And I mean, people talk about nurture. That Nurture, you can control where the spectrum is, right? You can control where the mm. extremes are, what the extremely good child or extremely bad child in your house is going to look like, right? But you have no control over where on that spectrum they're going to fall. I mean, they're going to be whoever they are, right? Your nurture is just a giant swath of land that they can land in. But where they land, that's up to yeah. them. Yeah. I mean, they're so different, the personalities, that I can't believe that it's just down to nurture, you know, because, I, and I can't believe we've raised the first one so, we raised the second one so much differently to the, to the first one, because they are so different, their personalities. And oh, yeah. I've got to think it's so much, uh, it's got to be nature. And then in the same way, you know, they talk about the birth order makes a big difference as well, which I think probably does. But I mean, I think it's, it's got to be the personality. I mean, the, the the second one, she's so like Christina. You know, she's very careful, very studious, yeah, um, and um, very kind. And, and and the first one is is um, kind of gets has tantrums all the time, gets really angry. So she obviously takes after her father. <laughs> and then the little one, Eliza, looks just like Christina. I mean, she is a spitting image of her. Yeah, and she's another one. She's just got this own like her developed her own personality. She just she's so tough, so strong-willed. She doesn't take any shit from any, the other two. Yeah. And maybe that's the, the third, you know, the little child uh, syndrome coming out, but she is just a boss. And yeah. uh, it's just so funny watching yeah. her I'm, attitude. And I'm a youngest child. I can tell you that that, that that does come from, you get tired real early of being told what to do. <laughs> to, yeah. I mean, real early. I, I'm the youngest of 13, right? So I had 14 parents, right? I had 12 older siblings than my actual mom and dad. And my actual mom and dad, they just, not- they, they raised me with benign neglect, right? But I had, you know, <laughs> I had, I had six mothers and six fathers, you know, beneath them that were all trying to push me around and you get real sick of that. Yeah. That's crazy. You had so many siblings. I know. I can't imagine what they must be like. Oh, it's a, it's a mess, and I, I pay for a fortune in, in, in SSRI drugs now, but whatever. It's a whole different story. <laughs> uh, Dan, I wanted to say thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, it was a real treat to have you here, man. Uh, you're welcome. Anytime. And um, when this is all over, like, let's get uh, some dinner in Long Beach. I still haven't seen this part of the world that you live in. I still want to come visit. 1000% we're doing that. We are absolutely doing that. We'll have the, have you and the girls come down. We'll have a barbecue over at my place done and done. Okay. Sounds good. I'm down. All right. Thanks, Dan. All right, Mike. Thanks. That was uh, Dan Blacker. We're going to take a quick break. We'll wrap up the podcast right after this. Aren't you tired of expensive cable packages? Now you can watch all of TVG's offerings in crystal clear high definition with the new Watch TVG app. Gain access to exclusive content, handicapping on demand, and TVG's greatest hits, including many award-winning features. Download for free now on Amazon Fire, Roku, and Apple TV. Or visit tvg.com promos watch for even more information.
Well, that was a lot of fun. Dan Black is a great guy, um, and uh, I couldn't be happier. Christina's always been one of my closest friends as well. She was, you know, someone that I've always just had a really great working relationship with, and someone I love traveling with her. And um, you know, she's always been a good sounding board, and I've always been a good sounding board for her. And Dan Blacker has always been. Um, you know, like if I've needed help, like I said, I, I started that whole interview out with when I was going through my divorce, Christina was one of the first people I knew. And by virtue of that, Dan was one of the first people that knew I was getting a divorce. And, you know, they, they opened their home up to me. Literally, I lived in their house while they were in Delmar for that whole seven weeks. And I, I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have anywhere to go. Um, and so I'll always be in, indebted for that. He, I don't think he's really charging me rent. I hope not. God, the interest on that's going to be a fortune. It was like eight years ago. Did it sound like he was going to? No, he's not going to charge me rent. Um, at any rate, thank you so much for joining me here on the TVG podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. And um, that's going to do it for this episode. But um, keep your eyes open. We'll have another one popping up in no time. And we'll talk at you next time. Bye.